I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I think I spent so much of my life, and even as we're talking about me as a teenager, like, I'm thinking about how much I thought, like, wow, I'm so messed up. There must be so many things wrong with me. And I look back and I'm like, that is not true. Like, there were a lot of behaviors that I was doing that, you know, probably were not the most healthy. (laughs) 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 Definitely weren't the most healthy. But I really look at that now and see that more as a sign of resiliency. Welcome back to another episode of You Need Therapy 1. Thank you. As always, Alex, you know the drill. Intro music, we love it. You can follow him at at BoothTunes on Instagram. You are awesome, and remember how much we love you. And two, I was so grateful, and all I can really say is wow to all the awesome feedback that we got from last week's episode if you haven't listened to it stop what you're doing right now go do that first you know that I think this but I think we are all pretty tired of diet culture whether we admit it or not and so the more we can speak truth into that the better and that's what we did in that episode so go listen to that one then come back and listen to this one if you haven't so we are a couple weeks into 2020 and I don't know about you guys but a lot of my plans for the year and even just this month have already shifted I mean, that's even when it comes to simple things like this podcast and the direction it was going and the people that I wanted on it. And so I went to lunch with a friend on Monday to talk about some of those changes and just my feelings around them. And we did this over some kale salads and sweet potato fries from Burger Up, if you know, you know. And well, the conversation kind of moved into a deeper um, level and we started talking about all the similarities we were holding and we think that we see people holding around 
um, how we go about relationships and in this, in that, how different we think we do things, even though it's really the same. And I'm going to take you guys back to attachment real quick. I have had so many of y'all call me, text me, DM me. I've had real life conversations, which truly, truly I've enjoyed. But obviously, so we got, I got you thinking, Kelly and I got you thinking about your attachment styles and what that means for you and what my friend and I really became passionate about in our conversation was the lie that is sweeping around about how different or how messed up we are because of some of our behaviors and because we have deemed them as unhealthy or bad. What I want y'all to know is that despite the behaviors you engage in because of your attachment style, whether we're avoiding or running towards something or somebody or whatever, or maybe staying still, the end result that we're all searching for is the same. We're all just trying to feel better. And I can't really say that wanting to feel better is a bad thing or a wrong thing, or that means something is wrong with you. The fact that you're trying to feel better means that there's something right with you. So halfway through this conversation, I was like, oh my gosh, wait, stop. This all needs to be recorded and everyone needs to hear this and everybody needs to be in this conversation. And well, so we couldn't exactly do that. But what we did do is sit down and talk about it a couple days later. um, And my friend actually offered to spill some of her own guts and story in that. So who is this friend? Well, some of you guys already know her, and some of y'all have just probably heard me talk about her or tell stories about her, and you might not know that that's even who I'm talking about, but she's my office mate or my office wife. We actually couldn't really decide what we call each other, but um, her name is Megan Moyer, and she's also a therapist. You all are going to be obsessed with her. She is like one of my top recs for therapy, too. I think I've sent like five of my friends to her. I would go see her, but I get to get all her insight for free on the daily. And in this episode, you're going to hear Megan's story. So I'll save all of that. But what I want you to enter in this space with her knowing is how truly, truly real she is. I don't really have a better word to describe her. I don't know that I've met someone or that many people as open as she is to actually tell you what she sees in you. And at the same time, what she sees and feels around herself. She's got a way of being honest without offering an ounce of shame. And she's also like really, really, really fun. So I really like her because of that as well. So let's not drag this out any longer. Here is Megan. Hello, hello. (laughs) Hello, 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 hello. Um, I have... A really kind, nice, gracious person with me in our office. Yes. This is the first um, episode I've done in a real therapy office. And our office. And I would say, you know, comparatively to what it normally is, I feel like it's relatively organized in here. Is it? Um, Well, before we get into that, Megan is um, my office wife. Is that what we we call each other? (laughs) Office (laughs) wife, office mate office family yeah we're our own family so we're actually in our office this is the first episode i've actually recorded in a therapy office usually we're on my couch and um it feels as though this would be what it would be like for you to give me therapy yes because i'm in the therapy chair except it's closer than you would ever have it 
way closer. <laughs> Brings me back to one of our first arguments about how I needed the chair to be way further away from my clients than you did. And I needed it closer because I like to be able to touch them if I like. Yeah. And I was it like, so Catherine, I can't breathe in this spatial situation. Um, <laughs> um, so actually, this is funny. So Megan is somebody that I... I can say this. I refer a lot of my people in my life to her. I just can't confirm or deny She that. can't confirm or deny. But there was one person in particular who she was seeing who knows me in another aspect of life. I'm going to give too much information <laughs> out. Anyway, she said, because um, I leave my shit around everywhere, like at my house. She in does. This off- <laughs> in this office, at Cycle Bar. My stuff is literally everywhere. One of my friends joke that every time I leave their house, I leave something for them. Like, I'll leave, like, a jacket or, like, my purse or, like, a <laughs> scarf or something. And then I, like, won't go back and get it. She said she asked you um, what it was like to share an office with me, I think, because I wish I could remember how she said it. Because she, like, brought my bag to me that I'd, like, left in a random spot. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. She asked what it was like to share an office with me because I'm so messy. And you said something like, because she does this, I'm willing to put up with this. I don't know. I imagine it was something about how I love you so much. (laughs) So I'm willing to come in and erase the board and put everything in order. Oh, the board is good. But your disorder also gives me something to organize, which helps me feel more regulated. So I I think it it works well. Okay. Well, I do that on purpose. Um, Okay. Anyway, back to why we're here. So before we get into anything, because obviously I know you just like I know everybody that comes up. (laughs) Um, These people don't know you. Some of them might, but most of them don't. So will you just give like a little intro, like who are you, where you're from, what you like to do, anything that you think is cool? Sure. So I am Megan, as we've already established. And let's see, my full-time job where I make money is being a counselor and sharing an office with you, which is amazing. Do you call yourself a counselor or a therapist? Sometimes I I actually call myself a therapist. Why do you just say that? A lot of times people (laughs) then ask me if I'm a physical therapist. Oh, yeah. Um, So I don't know. Technically, I'm a licensed professional counselor, but I feel like therapist sounds a little bit more... Well, when I think of counselor, I think of like helping solve minuscule problems yeah i don't know that's therapy. My, i have a therapy okay this is my own bias but i think that like therapy when i call myself a therapist this, i think it makes me sound more important i agree <laughs> but i think layman's for the regular people of the world okay. i don't know people can she's call a, me a counselor a, ca- a therapist for your head Yes, I am a therapist for your head. Officially, some people might call that a psychotherapist. Yeah, that cre- that's kind of creeps me out sometimes when people say that. So I don't call yeah. myself that. But I guess that's what we are. Basically, we're just trying to figure out what to call ourselves. Yeah, um, that's what this I need a therapist to figure out if I am a therapist. <laughs> and I can't be that therapist. <laughs> um, anyway, go on. You were a therapist, counselor, psychotherapist. Therapist, counselor, psychotherapist. Some people call me a life coach. As long as you know that you've signed up for therapy, um, you can call me whatever you want. Yeah. Um, some other things that I do, because as you know well, it's really hard for people like us to have one job. What uh, is people like us? People that may be referred to as sevens on the Enneagram. <laughs> I would not. I don't really want to box myself in like that. I just think people that but are fun and exciting. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I do some speaking, um, some counseling, some performance coaching, 
and dabble probably in a lot of different things, organizing. And we'll do more. Selling. I'm always looking for the next the next thing to get excited about, really. <laughs> Outside of work, what are your, like, favorite things to do? Favorite things to do, go on walks and long walks, drink lattes, mm-hmm. um, try out my various new hobby. I think right now, I was Googling this last night, but I'm like, I think my newest hobby is going to be jujitsu. <laughs> I, I, Wait, know. I don't want you to say too much on that because we're going to get to that, but <laughs> that doesn't surprise anyone, but also I would never, I'm not going to say I'd never choose that, but yeah. what led you down that? A couple, actually a lot of the male clients I've worked with have done jujitsu and have a lot of good things to say about it. And so I think it's kind of speak, sparked my interest okay. and then just with my sports background and mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into more of that but really playing sports my whole life and that being such an identity but such a source of pain and something I never really enjoyed I've really had to look outside the box to find athletic and like active things to do that don't feel painful to me mm-hmm. um so so it's like fighting <laughs> I think there's a lot more to it than fighting. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk more about that. So basically, I can't answer your one hobby thing because yeah. I don't have like don't specific have yeah. hobbies. I switch every yeah. every now and then. So yoga, jujitsu, blackjack. Not for money because, you know, I can become addicted yeah. to anything. Cycling. <laughs> there's just too much, too much staying in one spot for me. Oh, Really? I don't know. It's just not my jam. It's not for everybody. I Um, would come for you, though. You have to come to my classes. Yeah. Aren't I really good? Amazing. (laughs) Best (laughs) cycle instructor I've ever had. Oh, well, Because I haven't had many. You've had one. (laughs) Um, Okay. So one question I ask everybody uh, when they come is, have you ever been to therapy? So this is going to be an interesting question. Have, have you ever been? Have I ever been to Not therapy? like as a therapist, because obviously you come to work, but have you ever gone for yourself? Yes. I love this question. I tell people when they're looking for a therapist, if you can only ask that therapist one question, please ask them if they've ever been to therapy. I've never. Um, yes. Because I would not see somebody as a therapist who has not been to therapy. Right. One, they've never been willing to sit in the seat you're about to sit in as the client. And then two, gosh, how do you sell a product or how do you give a yeah. product that you've never experienced um mm-hmm. so have i ever been to therapy how long do we have for this um, oh uh, we're gonna be all in this <laughs> this question is gonna like literally be the episode the whole episode um the first time i went to therapy was when i was 14 and the first two therapists i went to i didn't get out of the car for like you um, didn't you just like skip i just I wouldn't get out took you yes wait so guess what what i don't think We've ever talked about this. Also, I'm just going to slide this in now. Do you remember the first time? I'm going to pause this question to go back for a question. When we met, because we didn't talk about how we met. So Megan and I met at um, working for a working at a place. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the first things you did was you came in and we were at, I was terrified this day. It was like a big meeting with everybody that worked there. And everybody seemed to know each other and know each other really well. And I knew nobody. I don't know if you came up to me or somebody introduced me to you. Let's just say I came up to you. Okay. (laughs) And I remember you being like, you worked at the ranch or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I did. And you're like, I really, (laughs) at that point, you were like, I want to start a sober living 
gosh one of my ideas yes Yes. and um i was like okay and you were like let's meet and i will say i don't know if i've ever told you this but like that i was so grateful for you in that because i again i didn't know anybody and Mm. i felt like everybody was so close and i didn't know how to get into that circle and we went to portland brew and you we sat down and you told me like your whole story which was like really great and I probably Mm -hmm. told you part of my story too I don't remember but from then on I felt it was just overall easier because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times it takes like one person it takes knowing one person to be able to go into a room and talk to a bunch of people and then after that I never felt I don't ever remember after probably that time ever felt like I was an outsider again which I think in that place is easy to do. Yeah, so it's, you. <laughs> you're so welcome. I'm so glad that that's the story. I didn't even remember that. But it does make me think about something I try to be really intentional about is everywhere that I go to really introduce myself to one person who just looks like they're on the outside. Because I think a lot of my life up until I went to college and even here and there outside of that, I just felt super lonely. Yeah. And I think the way I've really tried to combat that is like, okay, if I feel this way, there's definitely other people that feel this way. Yeah. So who can I at least say hi to and connect with? Yeah. That was, I mean, that was great. That was my first impression of you. Do you remember that at all? I don't. I want to <laughs> lie so bad. <laughs> Tell you that I do. Um, but something about my insides, I get really excited about meeting new people. Um, and I'm, gift. I'm sure that I spotted you and thought that girl looks like fun. Um, and I have to meet her and I'm sure something in there too was just wanting to connect with you. Um, so you have no first impression of me. So that says a lot. That's sad. (laughs) That's fine. Gosh, I want to lie. I want to lie. No, you can't. Don't have feelings. (laughs) Um, but the reason I stopped you in the beginning is because when I was, I probably was in middle school, what's sixth grade, 12. Mm -hmm. I think I was in sixth grade. My family forced me to go to therapy and I'm not even, I won't give any details of any of that today, but my mom forced me by, I mean, obviously she cared for me and, Mm -hmm. you know, I was the problem. So, (laughs) 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 hopefully Um, our moms are having a lot of grace for themselves as they listen to this episode. My mom was a great mom. Mom, you're a great mom. I love you so much. But I was acting out. And so obviously you're going to take the thing that's acting out and go try to help it not do that. Exactly. And she dragged me to a therapist and we called her the lady. We never even (laughs) called her. I don't know what her name is. She was like, you're going to see the lady. And I remember Uh, I was so against it for multiple reasons. But I have two memories of that. One was I was pissed. So I didn't mm -hmm. ever want to go. But I never really spoke to her. So I think I probably only went like three times. I remember one time just like being in the car with like my arms crossed. and like, I don't want to be here. And then the next time I think I remember that all my siblings were in there at the same time. And all I was doing is she gave me a dry erase board. And I was just drawing like... (laughs) 
<laughs> the limited two like simple flowers. <laughs> I had some silky pajamas with those flowers yeah. on them. I, I was remember just drawing them. that on the board. I wasn't seeing anything. Anyway, so I, I know what it feels like to not want to go to therapy. So when you started, you didn't even go into the office. No, the first couple of places I remember not going. And then my mom, I remember my mom got my dad involved. And so then why did you? I got out of the car. Um, I think, uh, I think I know. So I know a part of me wanted to go to therapy because I deeply was suffering. And the other part of me just felt like something was so, so wrong with me. And that only people who were really messed up went to therapy. So even though a part of me wanted to go, the other part of me felt so bad and so much shame about it that I didn't want to go. But the original reason that I went to therapy is because I was struggling with a lot of disordered eating. I'm glad you said all that because I think, well, it was, this was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So things were different back then. And I, I want to say... That's probably what it was. Like, generally, ever if you're going to therapy, there's something seriously wrong with you. And if there's something seriously wrong with you, that's really bad. Like, Yeah, which is so messed up because as a 14-year-old or whatever I was, I was deeply, deeply hurting and didn't have any idea of, like, really what was going on or how to make sense of anything or how to use my voice. And then on top of that, the place where I w- could have gone for healing, I felt so messed up for going there that when I went there, I had to act like I didn't want to be there. And so there was only a few, you know, I did therapy for a little bit of time until my parents allowed me to stop going but I remember it being this thing of like oh finally I get to stop going but desperately wishing that they would make me go yeah yeah and I you know I'll be real honest I don't remember exactly what the first therapist I went to looked like but she wasn't nearly as cool as us (laughs) (laughs) and so mine was like an old lady yeah, yeah I was with like an old lady who I felt like was nothing like me yeah um and it just kind of compiled yeah me feeling like Man, I really am messed up. I'm at this weird really, house yeah. with this old was lady. Yes, like it was in house? her house. Yes. Ooh, that is so weird. That is um, totally old school. And so I do kind of think like, wow, if I would have had somebody younger and more relatable, it could have been a better experience. But also yeah. it's know. really hard to do work with teens anyway. So maybe not. Yeah, it's, um, I don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. A couple of things in that. One... I want to know how you even knew that you had disordered eating, like how you were aware of that, or if you were, or did somebody tell you? And the other part, I want you to speak to as a therapist for people listening in the part of like how you're dis- how you figure out the right fit for you, because I have that same experience of this lady was old, like I didn't want to talk to her, I didn't feel like she was cool, and like when you're 13, you like want to only talk to cool people or whatever, mm-hmm. and then. My therapist that I really, really liked in grad school who really helped me, she actually works in this office, in this in this building. Oh, wow. Which I saw her one time, and I acted like I was on the phone and turned around because I, <laughs> I, I, I ghosted her. True I life, going true confession. She will never know how much she helped me. And there are two things that she said to me that I'll never forget that I tell my clients all the time. She'll never know how much she helped me because... I ghosted her and never went back, but that actually helps me when I have clients ghost me. I'm like, that doesn't mean they actually don't like me because that lady was great, but she was like old. Yeah. She was in her sixties and like very motherly, but I, at that point in my life, I, I needed that. But when I was little, I wanted somebody cool. And right now my therapist is in her thirties and I relate to her a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would want somebody 
older right it just can you speak to like what you think is important in finding the fit of a therapist yeah something i wish i would have known so much sooner yeah. i'd say at this point in my life oh my gosh i've seen over just one million from, uh, one million therapists um i mean probably i've worked with my current therapist for probably five years mm-hmm. but you know, in terms of just doing some of my own th- other therapeutic work, intensives, when I went to rehab, all these different things. I mean, I've probably experienced somewhere between 20 and 30 different therapists. And so what I wish I would have known earlier on my journey is all therapists are not the same, mm-hmm. which is almost funny to say, because like, yeah, obviously, but I just didn't realize that. And I think it can be so hard because you're in pain and you're going to get help. And then to think about, oh, is this the right person or is this the right fit? And so I think some of it is just when you, I think if you can ask for a referral from one of your friends, like, mm-hmm. hey, do they go to therapy? Do they know a therapist? Like, that's going to be a really great, great place to start. Mm-hmm. And then from there, like when you go to your first session, do you click with this person? Do you think they can help you? Because if you're seeing somebody you don't think can mm-hmm. help you, that ain't going to work. Right. Right. Like we know one of the greatest predictors for therapeutic success is the client therapist relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, do you like the person and do you get along Mm -hmm. with the therapist and do you feel like they're for you? Mm -hmm. So I look back at some of the therapists I had seen in my life and like, God bless them for dealing (laughs) with me. But also I look at that and I'm like, dang, you know, if I would have known more, I maybe could have found somebody that could have helped me more. But I also think, you know, the journey is Mm -hmm. the process or the journey is where the fun stuff is. And so I can look and say like, I've had all these unique experiences and like some people were really helpful and some people weren't. Um, but I definitely learned from all of them. Yeah. And two things in that one, the, you as the client have to be willing to create the relationship, but So that's one part that Mm -hmm. we can't really do anything about. And the other part is, yeah, like, is this somebody that I feel like I can, like, connect with? And in that, too, like, somebody can help you for a season and then you move on to somebody else. Like, I will run out of help when it comes to certain people. Like, I had a conversation yesterday with somebody of, like, it sounds like you need to do this. I don't do that. So I think let's transition you to this person And then you can come back, but it's like there are also different therapists for different seasons of your life. Yeah, which makes you a really great therapist that you're willing to tell the person, hey, why don't you go try this? Like, I'm not leaving you, but somebody else could be more helpful. And so I think some of it is also talking with your therapist or talking with people or thinking yourself. Because, like, I'm in a similar season Mm -hmm. of life. I transitioned a few months ago with my own therapy to seeing a male therapist. You're Um, not seeing? I'm... Oh, I have such a long lasting relationship with Ashley, but yeah, I'm not seeing her really anymore. I'm currently putting off our ending session. Oh my um, God. Our final session. Okay. Well, let's pause because she's probably going to be a lot of what Mm -hmm. you talk about too. Oh man. Back to disordered eating. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a four part (laughs) episode. Yes. So, okay. Back to how did you know that, how did you know you needed to go to therapy other than it it says you knew something didn't feel right, but you said part of it was disordered eating. Were you aware? Did somebody tell you? 
I did not know I had disordered eating. So I kind of learned about it. And by disordered eating, that's my soft way of actually saying I had a full-blown eating disorder. Are you Um, easing it? Still easing myself in and negotiating with my own shame within. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked a lot about being in recovery from alcohol and that kind of thing. But the eating stuff, um, I don't know. For whatever reason, I just haven't talked about it as much. Mm -hmm. It's okay. And um, I think it's really great that we're having a conversation about it but I remember in high school when I finally went to therapy for an eating disorder it really was because I think some friends of mine had reached out to the counselor at school who then talked to my mom Um, so I actually learned I had an eating disorder in a really roundabout way I knew I had always had like a really funky relationship with food um, that a lot was based on you know, we learn a lot about food from our families and we'll just preface something I always say to clients, but I'm now saying to myself is I love my parents. And if my parents are like yours, they're human beings. So that means they have gifts and they have limitations. Um, and I think I've done a lot of work around that to really be able to love them and appreciate them and accept that they're human. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope my future children, unborn Do children <laughs> can extend me the same yeah. grace because even though I think I'm going to be a perfect parent, I know that I'm not. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I learned, I remember sitting in health class my freshman year and learning about eating disorders and being like, oh, wow, I think this is what I have, which really? is so bizarre to me to be thinking about that or to like have that realization now. Wait, was it like a, this is what I have shit or like, this is helpful because, oh my gosh, I have this, this is a thing or is it like, oh, th- cool, I have this? I think it was like, oh, here's language or here's words to describe what I'm doing. And I was um, bulimic. So I was making myself throw up. So I think it would be kind of obvious of like, Hey, Megan, something isn't really working here for you. But I think that sometimes in the depths of what we have going on, it's hard to see what we're doing um, or, or to name it if you don't know. And so I was doing a lot of things. I was restricting, I was over exercising and then eventually all that led to purging. But I think something about, I remember reading it in the textbook and thinking like, Oh, there's a name for what I'm doing and I'm probably not the only one doing it or something in that realm. It's kind of hard to even explain. Yeah. And I, wonder for you because you have this like now you're having the actual firsthand experience of it I was talking about this with a client today of like it's hard to understand things like heartbreak it's hard to sit with somebody in heartbreak if you don't understand what that feels like Mm -hmm. so for you in in working with clients the whole idea of diagnosing people like that's very controversial like I don't want to label somebody or whatever for a lot of people having that label isn't so much of it's not like I'm labeling you with this but it's like hey look there's a thing that they wrote a book about right so that means one there's not so much there's nothing wrong with you else there'd be a, a lot of things wrong with a lot of people but because they wrote a book about this and because we know what this is that means there's a way out of this so I have the experience of, like, a lot of diagnosis, they're scary, and I think that it's like, oh, I don't want to put it, be put in this box and be this thing, and people are going to label me differently, but at the same time, it's almost like a big breath of, like, oh, my God. So does that mean there's a 
a roadmap out of here. Right. Like the initial thing can be really hard. I have this happen a lot. Um, I don't know that we have time to get into this in this episode, but there's this thing called covert incest. um, And it's not that complicated, but essentially it's when emotions go awry in your family. Um, And it's really sometimes uncomfortable to tell a client or not uncomfortable, but it's sometimes like I think to myself, I don't know how this person's going to receive this, but there's this book silently seduced that I recommend a lot that could be really helpful in giving words to describing what you're talking about, what you're Mm -hmm. experiencing. And even though people might have a reaction at the time to like, the look on their face sometimes is maybe painful or mm-hmm. hard to hear that almost always when I recommend a book or mm-hmm. even if it's an eating disorder or sex addiction or alcohol or depression or whatever it is, it can be hard to hear the label on it. But really my hope is not that you're labeled. My hope is like, Hey, here's a word for this. How about you go get, and here's some resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, I, yeah, I agree with you. Like there is nothing I really firmly believe this. Like there is nothing wrong with any inherently wrong with any human being. You may have a lot of behaviors that are not working Mm -hmm. like that, I believe. But I think I spent so much of my life. And even as we're talking about me as a teenager, like I'm thinking about how much I thought like, wow, I'm so messed up. There must be so many things wrong with me. And I look back and I'm like, that is not true. Like there were a lot of behaviors Mm -hmm. that I was doing that, you know, probably were not the most healthy, (laughs) 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 definitely weren't the most healthy, but I really look at that now and see that more as a sign of resiliency. Like Mm -hmm. I had a lot of pain that I was trying to make sense of, and I picked all these different coping strategies to help myself. Mm -hmm. And that was the best I could do at the time. Um, And so I have a lot of gratitude actually looking back for my story and these different things that I used that did cause a lot of pain. But in some ways, I'm like, wow, these things probably kept me alive and helped me get resources that I needed, which is really crazy. I remember the first time I was in college and a therapist told me that I should be really grateful for my eating disorder. And I was looked at her and I wanted to be like, are you effing crazy like this thing is controlling me um, and causing me misery and all this stuff and she was like I think this thing helped you survive yeah well yes a hundred percent and that's what how I explain it's how I've made sense for myself but also how I explain people who are struggling with this it's like why did I have to pick this or why does this have to be my thing or like why do I like why did this happen to me I'm like this actually might have happened for you in the sense of like you were really 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 struggling and the pain was so intense like thank god this is what you picked right like thanks thank god that this was an option for you because yeah in the moment like an eating disorder yet you're not ever truly really happy in that mm-hmm. but it, it is helping like almost like silently like reduce or cover or hide or distract whatever is going on that is so big and so scary and so you don't have to it to me it was a distraction i'm not able to deal with this right now i really am not it's a survival mechanism and like if we look at attachment which again another day another episode for another day we have to do 2.0 attachment (laughs) when we look at attachment like when i think about it and i look back i'm like wow alcohol or eating like an eating disorder or any of these other addictions like what a great thing to attach to now i'm not promoting these things but you know what compared to sometimes like really volatile or like unpredictable human beings when you look at an eating disorder, man, it's consistent. It's always there for you. Like you eat this, or you don't eat that. Yeah, like, you have a relationship 
with this addiction, which in a lot of ways, even as destructive as it is, is a lot safer sometimes than humans. Yeah. And so when we can look at it like that, there's so much room for compassion. Megan might be the first person that makes me cry. And we're not even talking about my life. But that sentence, I might have you say it again, of like the that eat, the eating disorder, the one that you developed, the one that whoever is struggling with it developed, like that is consistent. And also you're in somewhat, I struggle saying this because the disorder ends up controlling you, mm-hmm. but you have the, the idea when you're in it that you have control of it. And that feels really safe when a lot of other people, and if we're talking about attachment and relationships, people are unpredictable if they're if they've learned one thing is you never know and so yeah that i think for a lot of people it's like thank god i have this thing because people are unsafe and people can leave and people can come and people can do whatever but i can go back to this whenever i want and it's always going to be there yeah it reminds me, I tell this story a lot. I don't know. If, I want to say it's an African proverb, but who knows? Half the time, <laughs> don't ever check the sources of things that I mention because I don't know. I'm not a researcher. Like, actually, my fiance is a five on the Enneagram, which is the, so the researcher rare. or whatever. And I'm like, thank God for him because I just, like, make up facts right. and statistics. And I'm like, I think I heard this somewhere, but maybe <laughs> I made it up. So now for the African proverb that may not be an African proverb. Um, there's a story about a woman or a man. It depends on who I'm talking to. And then I change the gender. And they are walking down the side of a, a rushing river. And the storm comes and they fall in the river. And in order to survive, like, the waters that are so tumultuous and could kill them, they grab onto this log, and the log saves their life. Like, but then the storm's over, and they're in this still water. And they can see the shore way off in the distance, but they start trying to swim there with holding onto this log that saved their life. Like, this log carried them through this crazy river thing. And they start trying to swim, but the log, like, they can't swim to the shore with the log. Um, and so they have to make this choice. Like, are they going to leave the log and try to swim to the shore or are they going to stay on the log forever? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, if they don't have enough skills to swim to the shore, like they'll get halfway and die. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not until the person believes in themselves and believes they have enough strength that they can really let the log be and swim to the shore. And so I tell people the same sort of thing when we're talking about any behavior that they want to give up, like this thing might have really been good for you in a way that may also have caused a lot of harm but you may not need it anymore but we may need to develop a lot of skills so that you can believe that you don't need it anymore Mm -hmm. i'm gonna use that and this is gonna make me a better therapist (laughs) i think you're right i just hope all the money i spent on therapy can help other people (laughs) be good therapists i think that it's like that i'm so visual and so that's super helpful and i think i try to express that to people a lot of times of like yeah, these behaviors have been so helpful to you, of course, that you kept doing them. Of course, you don't want to, but it's now hurting you. Mm-hmm. And just getting into the whole idea, because I frame eating disorders um, as a, just another kind of an addiction. And how I have I've come to like know to define addiction, it's not one sentence, but one thing I always say, it's like, what happens in addiction is it beca- it's a way to meet a legitimate need of yours, like to survive. But now it's happening in like illegitimate ways. So it's not actually helping you survive anymore. It's holding you back. Right. And so as you move and you grow as a human, you have to like move with that process. And some of us don't want to do that. We've never had to do that. We're too scared to do that. Mm-hmm. But 
addiction is what happens when we are using those old solutions over and over. They've stopped working, yet we're trying to still make them work, and they're not. And now they're just causing us pain. And that's like the essence of behavior modification. Like if there's anything I've done in my life, it's try to modify my own behavior. And it's like, oh, well, you know, if I just stop throwing up or if I just stop drinking or if I just, you know, relax more, if I just did this or I just did that. And it's like so much effort. And trust me, like there are things that need to be stopped. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, one day, which I'm sure we'll get into, but one day I really did. I needed to go to rehab and I needed to stop drinking and get some things like under wraps so that I could mm-hmm. actually move forward. But what I've also found is like behavior modification is really, really, really hard work. Mm-hmm. And if we can do some stuff from the inside, like and develop some skills, develop some self-love, self-compassion, like all these things, all of a sudden, if we go back to the metaphor, you're not trying to swim with the log to the shore. You're like, oh, I got this. Mm-hmm. Like, And you're not like, oh, no, if somebody rips this log away from me, I'm going to drown, which is sometimes what happens. Like people come into therapy and they're like, I need you to help me stop doing blank Mm -hmm. or I need you to help me stop throwing up or I need you to help me stop over exercising. And I'm like, wait a second. I don't know that we want to do that because you might drown. Yeah. Yes. So before I rip all this stuff away, we got to build something else. We've got to put some other stuff That's there. Like, so we've got to get your life jacket. We've got to get your swim lessons. Like, we've got to get your raft. Yeah. Like, a freaking boat with a motor. I don't know. Something. Yeah. In all that, because I would like to know, because we'll go backwards into this, of some of your story, and we're definitely going to talk about the rehab for you, mm-hmm. that situation. I'm sure people are like, what, what? She has her life so together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> normal people go to rehab. Yes, they do. Um, I want to know because this is might be a little like convoluted, and it definitely is for me, which I think surprises a lot of people. That like I went to become a therapist, like in grad school, I'm like running. 12 miles a day and then going to a hot kickboxing class and then eating baby carrots for lunch. So it's Mm -hmm. like, I didn't get my shit together and then was like, I'm going to go help people. I didn't realize I needed help until I was like, I'm going to try to help people. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So for you, how, where did you, because you also, your, your first degree was not college degree, was not in anything therapy world. So how did you, because you started therapy at 14, so that was always like a thing. Tell me about the process of you realizing, hey, this might be something I want to go become. Yeah, so I wish it happened like that. It happened backward of like I fell into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my undergraduate degree, I, I used to be a professional student, but hopefully I put that <laughs> on the um, put that in retirement. <laughs> But my first degree actually was in accounting and marketing. And um, the way I chose that is basically I got to college and I was playing college golf and doing a lot of things. And I had no idea who I was, what I wanted to do. And so I just thought, well, I want to be a woman who makes a lot of money and is powerful and successful in the business world. And what's the best thing I can do there? And I was like, accounting. Why were those things important to you? Because I thought that would make me happy. Um, that would create a life of meaning. Um, I really, yeah, being the best. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I spent so much time feeling like I wasn't good enough and obviously still, we all still have those days, but I just thought what's going to make me feel good enough. And I was like being at the top. Mm -hmm. And so I 
got my accounting and marketing degree, graduated in three years, and then um, still was playing golf. I didn't golf. know you graduated in three years. Yeah. Um, you really were the best. Well, it was kind of, it wasn't a fluid graduated in three years. I was okay. playing golf, so I kind of graduated, and then I started my master's degree while I was still playing golf at Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And so then I got a master's in sports leadership. I guess I did graduate in four years. I think I only took, like, I was on, like, the 12 hours a semester plan or something. Oh. Um, so I was able to, I kind of spread my classes out so I could, mm-hmm. you know, be the best but also have a lot of fun because it's hard if you, like, have too many classes and too much studying. <laughs> And too much traveling for golf. <laughs> so anyway, graduated, and then I was I played a fifth year at Kentucky, and um, got my master's in sports leadership for no reason other than I was like, which program will let me get out of here in one year? Because I didn't want to stay in school anymore. And so then after that, I graduated. What was painful about school? Like, what led you to? And maybe it's not. Well, maybe it wasn't painful. I just make that up in my head. But what made you want to get out of there so fast? I think it was more so that it was my fifth year. It wasn't You're so much. Or? I actually didn't want to leave. I didn't like golf, but Kentucky and playing golf at Kentucky and my coach when I was there was really the first place that I really began to thrive. Um, I tell people I won every award for not being that great at golf. Um, so I really made the most there. I felt really valued. I had. My college golf coach really mm. was a mentor to me, someone who really loved me for who I was and helped me in a lot of ways. And it was really this place that I had a sense of belonging probably for the first time in my life. So I didn't so much want to leave, except that I had older friends who had been out of school for four years that I was like, would talk to them on the phone. They'd be like, you're still in school. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm still here. So I just wanted to get out and like live my life. It sounds like, and if I'm making this up, let me know. Mm-hmm. It sounds like when you were in school playing golf, you finally had that sense of belonging, the validation, the affirmation, the like sense of love and care that you might have been trying to get your whole life mm-hmm. in a sense. The interesting thing that you said is, I didn't like golf. So is that just like one more log you're grabbing onto to try to get this thing and this time it really works? Mm-hmm. So how does that screw with your head? Yeah, it goes back to even like things are not good or bad, right? So it's so much of us, I think, as humans want to mark things as good or bad. And so much of me wants to be like, I hated golf, so that was bad. Mm -hmm. And I think there was the part of me that was doing something I didn't like. But the exchange is I got this sense of belonging that I really did like. And so I did have that sense of belonging, which was great. And then also there was still so many addictive behaviors running through me. You know, I, in one sense, I looked really great on the outside and I was really achieving like at a high level, playing golf, going to school, president of everything you can imagine. And then, you know, I tell people that was my day job. And then my night job was when I would go drink and have my various addictions where I kind of coped with living a life that was really incongruent to who I was. You know, it wasn't until I remember sitting in treatment and there was family week and this therapist asked me to make a collage and she wanted on this inner circle to be like the parts of me that were like the true me. And then on the outer circle, she wanted me to show like who I was to the world. And I remember making that collage and being like, holy shit, like the true me doesn't look anything like this person that the rest of the world sees. Mm -hmm. And I remember like rolling that up and I was going to go present it to my family, which family week with your like is just hilarious. You could do a whole sitcom on that family week in rehab. Um, 
And I remember feeling like I, this might sound dramatic, but I was like, maybe this is what it's like. Like if, when a person tells their family that they're gay or like when they like come out, because I felt like so much of me was coming out of like, I came from this very athletic family and I was like, I don't even like sports. Like Mm -hmm. so much of my identity was around athletics and you don't like sports, but what did you like about sports? I liked the belonging. Yeah. So I was willing to do something. I mean, I was the only three sport varsity athlete in my school. Like I played golf in the SEC. Like my life was sports. Like that's what I did. And I don't even like, I mean, sports are fine. Like I know a lot about them, but all the time people ask me like oh do you still play golf i'm like nope when's the last time you played (laughs) probably like three years ago (sighs) you know i coached while i was getting my master's degree but i also like have this hilarious thing that happens i have gratitude almost every day for not playing golf if it's Mm -hmm. really nice outside i think to myself i'm so happy i'm not playing golf right now (laughs) (laughs) and if it's really cold outside i'm like i'm I'm so so happy (laughs) i'm not playing golf right now and if I have to go do something that I'm like, oh, like, I got to go do this thing and it's three hours. I'm like, oh, my gosh, at least it's not six hours. Yeah. Like, I practiced every day for six hours. That's crazy. Like, people don't realize, like, how much goes into golf. I'm like, no wonder so many golfers are alcoholics. Like, God, yeah. all that time with yourself and, like, trying to perfect something. Like, oh, my gosh. So when you say you had that, like, second job of, like, going and whatever, did you, were you aware at that time? That you had a problem, or is it just like, I'm a college student, I'm having fun, and, like, I deserve this? Oh, uh, yeah. I knew I had a problem. Um, okay. I kind of knew, you know, I had the eating stuff going on in high school and, like, other just was rebellious stuff. Was that still stuff. happening? Yeah. Okay. That was still so it never happening. really went away. Um, it, there were seasons where it got better, like, not better, but there were seasons where it got more manageable, and then there were seasons where it was really out of control, but it was always there, and... Early on in college, I had this spiritual experience, we'll say, and I got really involved in the evangelical Christian world. And with that, I found a lot more belonging and a lot of really, really great friends. The other part of that is I really began, I really began to believe all of my, let's say, addictions were then sin. So then I got into this whole thing of trying to solve, like, bless my heart. I tried everything, you know? Um, but then I really got into this thing of thinking like, oh, if I was just more Christian or if I just prayed more, or if I had more community or if I loved God more, or like whatever, these things would go away. And now I tell people, I'm like, I didn't need more Jesus. Like I need a rehab. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, they were still there. They got a lot more manageable or maybe I learned how to hide them better and look better. Right. But I was also talking to people in my life about what was going on. Did anybody express concern for you? Yeah. Okay. I had great friends. Okay. I was seeing therapists. My coach was involved. Like, I definitely had people, but it was kind of just like, here's these lingering things. That, it, like, what, I there. wonder for you, did you have the experience of, I can't need to go to rehab. There's no way I need to go to rehab because... I know the kind of people that go to rehab, yeah. and that's not me. I never even thought about rehab because I think I didn't even know people went or something like that. Okay. So I think, yeah, like it's kind of crazy to do what I'm doing now and think about myself of like, oh, how would I, I was just like dabbling in all these like various really harmful behaviors. But I think that says something about our society, you know, like Mm -hmm. so much of this stuff is normalized and I um, do a lot of speaking on college campuses. And so I'll hear a lot of like, Oh, you know, I'm drinking, but I'm not that bad. Like, and I think what I come back with is, Hey, like in this room, 
you know, if we look at statistics, one in four college students already meet the definition for a substance use disorder, which we would call alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And then 50% are one like criteria away from that. So I tell people, I'm like, if you're looking at Catherine to see, you know, oh, I don't drink as much as she does, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're okay. Well, also because what I don't think a lot of people know is that addiction is progressive. And so something that might be working for a little bit of time, if you're one criteria away, well, that, I mean, that's a little bit risky to like stay in, but I think that's what makes us, for me, it was, that can't be me because I don't want to. For multiple reasons. That can't be me, but, like, I don't want that to be me. So I'm yeah. going to find all the evidence I can find for that not to be me. And I I will I want to tell this little story. So when I was in grad school, I went to – I did my practicum and my internship at the place that I ended up working at for three years when I graduated. Wonderful place. Um, loved it so much. And But I was this – I think I was pretty sheltered. <laughs> this, like, little – white sorority girl who's essentially engaging in all of her disordered eating eating disorder exercise addiction behaviors but i think i'm you know killing it so i go into this treatment center and it it was it's a big treatment center and they serve everything and it's pretty acute and trauma focused but i went in thinking like i'm going to become the service going to help all these people and whatever and they put me in the young men's at the time that was organized differently. Did I ever tell you this? Mm-mm. They put me in the young men's house. And so the, most of the clients were around my age. I remember going to the first group, group therapy man. And being scared out of your well, mind. Terrified. <laughs> I would tell my, I would tell my supervisor that I was sick and I would like leave. I would like not go to group. I would find any way not to go to group. But the first time I went, I, because this is, the, this is what I think is a problem. And I became aware very quickly, but I walk into this place thinking that these people are different than me. Mm. I walked into this house thinking these people are different to me, almost as if they weren't human. That's the experience that I have of like these people are there's something wrong with them or they're they're bad people i don't exactly know what it was but i just remember feeling very different than them and i sat down in the first group a client did his first step mm-hmm. which for those of you that don't know that what that really entails it's really a inventory of everything that your addiction has caused you or you have caused other people it's it's kind of to like shake you and wake you up and say like hey hey this is a problem but i remember this one guy and he did his first step and I just remember my jaw dropping and my eyes wide. Part of it was because I was like, holy shit, I've never heard stories like these because I'm this sheltered girl and I'm having this experience of who do I think I am that I'm going to help these people? What the, like, what the fuck kind of. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is like, I feel even more disconnected from these people. Like, oh my gosh, whatever. So after I'm of course doing my own work through this, but I am just like these people my actual behaviors like i never took stole my grandmother's wedding ring and pawned it Mm -hmm. but i did some shitty things i lied to a lot of people i lied to myself i lied to my family i lied to my friends i skipped out on things i missed out on things i wasn't nice all the time like i did a lot of stuff and it wasn't the same exact behaviors and no i wasn't using those drugs or doing that or i wasn't homeless and stealing shit but I essentially should have been, and I met with 
this particular guy, which is really cool, he ended up, he's great, he's sober still, great guy, of course, and um, I met with him maybe three or four years after he had left because he started working in the treatment treatment world, and we met for, like, coffee for, like, marketing stuff. And he, the first time we met, he was like, I'll never forget your face. <laughs> oh, gosh. He you were caught in the act. The first, one of the first things he said, it was like, hi, how are you? And then he was like, I'm, I will never forget your face the first day you came to group. Hmm. And he was like, you were terrified. And I was like, yeah, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me at that place. Yeah. It was like a wake up of, like, you are, this is all the same. Like I am all like, I am like you, you are like me. Yeah. Which is awesome. I'm so glad you're bringing that up because I think if I had a mission in life, like that would be one of them is like, we are all so much more the same than we are different. And even now, as we're talking about different parts of my story, I'm thinking about like, Oh no, who's listening to this and what are they going to think about me? And, um, here's some parts of my story that maybe people know, or maybe they don't know. And, um, I kind of have this awareness of this judgment, but as you're even telling that story, I was thinking to myself, like, I am so grateful for my story and what I've been through because it genuinely allows me to, to sit with anybody and really see like, yeah, we're not that different. Like Mm -hmm. I maybe haven't done exactly what you've done, but I could do that Mm -hmm. like or I can see where maybe I'm the same and so I hope like I even tell people that come to therapy and I tell people in my life outside of here like you are not different than Mm -hmm. somebody sitting on my couch like do not think for one second like I work with people who are messed up and like like, well the different thing is is that these people are willing to do something about it that's what I'm saying like I'm like I work with some brave ass people because you know what makes them different than the rest of the people that are walking around hurting in the world is they're actually willing to do something about it and so who's I tell people I'm like who's crazier the person who gets their (laughs) arm blown off and is just like walking around and it's like it's okay like it'll be okay I'm gonna tough it up Meanwhile, they're like bleeding out or the one who goes to the hospital to like get the arm sewn back on. Right. And so I think that's how I feel about therapy. And Which I when you think, put it that way, I'm like, duh. Yeah. It's like people who go to therapy are not people who are like the most messed up in the world. Like there are people who are actually trying to do something different because mm-hmm. they are willing to recognize their suffering and have some humility about it. Mm-hmm. Or they got forced into it by going to treatment because of life circumstances. Wait, you know, but <laughs> something like in between there. Yeah. You know, but like brave people are willing to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate that you're willing to say that. And to like, if we as a society stopped looking for like all these things that make us so different, like, oh, I'm this color or, oh, I have this political affiliation or, oh, I'm this religion or whatever. If we stopped looking at those things and started looking for the similarities, I think the mm-hmm. world would be like a much more connected place. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure you hear it in your office, like half the problems, no, 90% of the problem 99. I hear in my 99% is people being lonely. Mm-hmm. That's, I read, wrote a whole article on that. People if I in, read, I would read yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't take that offensively. You don't have a first impression of me and then you don't read my oh, blog. Gosh, I did listen to the podcast. Oh, okay, great. Um, but yeah, I, I think that a lot of people come in here and think it comes down to like, I'm not in relationship like I want to be in relationship with people. And that's terrifying. And we'll do anything to fix that or avoid feeling it. Mm-hmm two different avenues which is like group therapy like i have 
group therapy for all listeners out there is amazing. I changed more in group therapy than I ever have changed in individual therapy. And Mm -hmm. I love individual therapy. I really do. I think there's a time. I think there's a place. But also group therapy is so powerful. And I get it. People are scared. I was scared. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to sit with people who are lonely and then to offer group therapy. And people be like, oh, hell no, no, I'm not going to that. I'm like... All right. What I think I see when I encourage that, or even when I worked in treatment, you had to go, mm-hmm. and people are like, I'm not going to that group. I'm not talking to that group. It's because there is part of us that knows by doing that, that's going to open up a whole mm-hmm. other avenue. And to get what I want, I'm going to have to learn how to let go of that log. Mm-hmm. And so going to group, people are going to essentially, like I was talking about earlier, with just our personal conversation of like, I'm going to be in a room with people that are going to be holding up mirrors to the behaviors that I'm Mm -hmm. choosing. And I'm not going to be able to be like lie about that because there's 10 people, five people, however many people seeing it. So yeah, you guys should get in some group therapy. Megan has a group. (laughs) I have a couple groups. Shameless plug right there. (laughs) Um, uh, And we're going to start a, we're going to one day have a little situation for you guys to come hang out with both of us. Yeah. But back to, Back to where we were, can you move us through post-college? So you graduate, you got, so Megan got an undergraduate degree in accounting and then yep. a graduate degree in what? Sports leadership. Sports leadership. And then you come mm-hmm. where? And then I graduated and two days later I flew out to Portland, Oregon and I did an inter- internship working at Nike. And I forgot about this part of your life. Yeah, that was the plan. Like I was going to work job, at Nike, right? right? Yeah, dream job. You know, I got selected for this really niche experience. I'm working out there. It was a really eye-opening experience. Like, this is what I thought I wanted. Like, I made it. You know, LeBron James was riding his bike around campus, um, and I'm just walking past him. You know, and this was it. And I'm so, so grateful for that experience because it was so much of what I thought I wanted. Um, I, I thought that it would make me feel different about myself I thought that finally I would feel like man I'm enough but as anybody knows like as soon as you get to the next rung of the ladder the next one like pops up and you're like oh shit I gotta keep climbing Mm -hmm. and so what I learned there were you aware of the the feelings associated with being there and realizing that there was another rung or Yeah, I think so. I've always been a pretty, I don't know if you're like this or maybe all therapists are like this, but even at 14, I think people said I I acted like I was 30. Um, And so I think I've always been pretty like insightful. I just didn't have the right environment to really be myself or I didn't know how to be myself or that kind of thing. So yeah, I knew. And actually somebody came to visit me and I was showing around campus because Nike world headquarters is like 40,000 people. It's a college campus. And they looked at me and they said like, wow, you can't ever leave here. Like you've made it. This is amazing. And I remember inside of me thinking to myself for the first time I started finding my anger and I thought, if you fucking want to come work here, you work here. But like, I don't want to be here. Oh, and I was like, wow, I, I don't know. I want to say I was mad at the world, but I think I was mad at, I had always played this hero role in my family. That's another episode, family roles. But, you know, like I was always winning awards and doing this and doing that and like the hero. And I think I was just like, man, I'm tired. I've been performing my whole life. I literally graduated from college, stopped playing my like golf career and the next day basically went to work Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking to myself when do I actually get to do what I want to do 
And I really had this moment of clarity, which I'm so thankful for, where I thought to myself, you know what? I was walking around campus. I was walking from one building to the other. And I thought to myself, you know, if I fell over and died right now, I think the next person would be standing behind me, like trying to take my job Um, because it's a competitive culture and rightfully so. But I thought to myself, I'm like, Megan, is that the life that you want? And so that internship ended four months later and I got on a plane. Oh my God, what? (laughs) And I moved to Eastern Africa. (laughs) Wait, I totally blocked that out. Yeah, I lived in Africa for for six months, seven months. Doing what? Mission work. Wait, okay, hold on. Because you are, I don't even know like what word, what comes after trifecta, but like you are like the, uh, okay, so you're playing this college sport, you're getting multiple degrees, you're drinking and partying, so you have that part mm-hmm. then you have this faith part then you have this Nike part then like so you're like what are you if I'm not going to be the top at Nike I'm going to go and like save all of the children in Africa and become like a mission like what I'm going to write a book <laughs> but like you are the like whack-a-mole of like what can I hit this isn't working this isn't working this isn't working this isn't working because you know you're not giving up what you're not doing is you're not giving up you're going to keep going until you find that sense of like belonging or whatever it is and that means what yeah and I think the the thing is is I don't think people looked at me and thought like what the heck is wrong with her she's crazy or something people actually looked at me and kept thinking that I was amazing yeah and so what ended up happening is all of my pain always got ignored or not always but I think it was easy to ignore it because it's like oh yeah Megan might have this and this and this like going on but also like we love being around her and look how awesome she is and so I was so good at performing Like I was so good at being who I needed to be and like locking the pain away that I just kept going. And so the Africa thing really was like, wow, well, if being rich and successful didn't didn't work for me, maybe being poor will. This is why I love talking to you. Yeah. I learn so much about myself when I talk to you. And just, you know, therapists are always learning about themselves. Exactly. So we I'm can't stop. Right. We're insatiable. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, last week I had, because we're, we have, we have very similar personalities, which mm-hmm. we know, and I'm always doing things. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people will look at me and be like, wow, she can start a business. She can teach cycling. She can be the life of this party. She can teach her how to teach yourself how to do this like if I want to learn how to do something I have the ability to learn how to do it and do it well mm-hmm. and I, I've done that a lot and I fit in a lot of different areas and my friend this week she was talking to her friend that was doing something and she needed something to like keep her mind occupied while she was doing it she was like listen to my friend Catherine's podcast and she said wow that girl can do anything <laughs> and she sent it to me and I was like of course, that's supposed to be a compliment, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I don't want to, I, I don't know that I want that. I think that people are probably like, get your shit together or like stay consistent or whatever. But I feel something about the fact that I always have to be doing something. Yeah. It sounds like if I can be your therapist yeah. for a second, <laughs> um, it sounds like you feel shame for the way that you're wired. And I right. think with any of us, it's like knowing our wiring. So I once had a friend one time who was like, gosh, I don't know that I can be friends with you. You always have like something different going on or you're never committed to anything. And that really like, I had to think about that. And I really, it was actually in reference to how much I switched different gyms that I was doing. And which you do that a lot. Which I do that 
And I went and I was kind of processing this in therapy of like, man, is this really who I am? Like, I can't say committed anything. And really what I found is like, no, I am committed to the things that matter for me. And then also I need a lot of change and variety in my Mm -hmm. life. And so, yeah, there are a lot of things that change with me. Like I have new hobbies. I have new gyms. I'm reading, you know, I said I don't read, but that's a lie. I do try to read eight books at one time. And there's all these different things. Um, I I'm wish I could say I did reading half of a book. Sometimes I do, but I also say, you know what, if you get what you I need, what I needed. then you can put the book down. <laughs> so yeah, I That's think what, what I get what I need out of doing projects and mm-hmm. I'm done. And I, yeah, you're right. I feel ashamed of the fact that people might see that one way, but one, I'm making that story up. Right. Because I think a lo- what a lot of people do see is, oh, I wish that I have the ability to leave something when it's not working anymore, which is what you did in Oregon. You left, you went to Africa. So then you go to Africa. So I go to Africa and I thought that I was, it's a really long story. I thought I was going there to just do like some service work. Turns out I was a missionary and preaching in the street and in churches, the gospel, um, which is just not me. Um, but because I can't quit anything or couldn't quit anything, I stayed there for the seven months. I came back 30 pounds heavier and I was in fact sober for those, those months, but came back and had never, ever, I was living literally in the bush. So I had not seen how I looked and was just eating carbs and all sorts of things. So I came back really not okay in my body for lots of reasons. I mean, sure, there's the eating disorder stuff, but then also like, I just didn't feel good. I mean, I was swollen. Right. And so I came back, I kind of wandered around, I lived in my family's house, I traveled for six months, I was so, so, so lost, um, but really trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And actually, I thought like, well, I guess I'll go coach college golf, because golf was what I knew. Um, And there was a lot of there is I tell people I would love to coach college golf. I love everything about coaching and think I'd be successful except for the actual golf part. Um, (laughs) But so I started interviewing for these different jobs, all this stuff. And I had some good friends living in Nashville. And gosh, I interviewed a Dave Ramsey. I interviewed just all sorts what of different places. This? Or you don't have to put um, years on it. 2014. Okay. Um, and so I was interviewing for these things and all this stuff. And um, I was reading Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. And in it, she tells the story of this guy who came up to her afterward. And he talked about how when he was younger, he used to be a painter. And he hung his paintings on the refrigerator and one time his uncle came over and said to his dad, like, what are you raising this faggot artist? And the guy said, I felt so much shame. I never painted again. And again, I had this another moment of clarity. And I thought, what do I have so much shame about in my life that I'm not willing to do? And so I just keep doing whatever I think is going to make me look good. Because I think the guy had gone on to be really successful in business. And so in that moment, I realized like I was going after these really big time golf coaching jobs and I was having success and had some offers. And I thought, wow, I'm about to do the same thing. I'm about to take this job where people will think I'm awesome because, oh, I'm so young and I have this awesome job. And in the midst of it, like I am denying like who I really am. And I had no idea who I really was. I just knew it wasn't like golf. And so I had been offered a coaching job at Trevecca because one of my friends was coaching soccer. It's a long story, but I came down here and coached golf and they said, hey, we can't pay you that much, but you can go to school for free. And I thought, (laughs) well, I'm really good at going to school. Like, I love going to school. And you liked it. I I'm like always at the top of my class. It makes me feel so good about all this stuff that I'm doing that 
really lacks integrity and is super destructive. But I was like, man, I got these business degrees. I got this sports leadership degree. I guess I'll take some counseling classes. So that's I really literally how you chose that. just started taking counseling classes. I love that. And so then much. I got into some of my own counseling, which I've been in before. It was actually group counseling. And I kept coming in and saying, like, you know, I had built this life that looked so good on the outside. And then I would go to counseling and say, like, here's this crazy thing that I did last week. And one time I came in and I said, I just don't know what to do. And the therapist looked at me and said, you're an addict. You need to go to rehab. And I said, me? And I was like, people like me don't go to rehab. Like, do you know what I've done? Like, I play golf in the SEC. I've won this award. I worked at Nike. I ch- I lived in Africa. Like, you know, I people like me don't do that. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, because you had the same idea of that I had, probably of what yeah, people that you're yeah. not like that. Well, in the same like, I know people. I know what people who go to rehab do. I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm not that bad. I don't live under a bridge. Actually, I have I have a lot of friends and did at the time who drank way more than me mm-hmm. um, or had way more going on than me. And this therapist looked at me and said, you know, Megan, I know a guy who drinks one day a year and he's an alcoholic because when he start when he starts, he doesn't stop and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And again, I kind of like was like, F you, you know, whatever. And I really wasn't going to go. But I started talking to some of my friends and I was like, listen to this crazy idea this therapist told me. And my friends actually were like, who had been there on the journey with me for years. And they actually were like, well, you know, I never thought of that before, but maybe. And I was like, you all are crazy. No way. And so finally, like, again, there's this one day I remember I was on a golf trip and I walked into a hotel room by myself and I just thought to myself, like, I am so lonely. I'm so miserable. I really like, I just don't care if I live, if I die, like, I don't care. And I pictured my life five years from now. And I thought in five years, I'm going to be married to some guy who looks the right way and makes a lot of money. And we're going to have kids and I'm going to be drinking like in secret. And I was like, that is what my life is going to look like. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I'll go to treatment. Like, I have no idea if this is going to work. I've tried so much, but I don't want that life. Like, there's got to be something better. And so I went to treatment. In five months of treatment, it came back. You I were still there for, know. oh, you went to sober living. Yeah. I went to treatment. I went to sober living. You follow recommendations. Yes. And that's a whole story for another day. And I came back and I was still like, I have no idea what I want to do. But I kept going to class and kept coaching golf just to like provide some consistency. And finally got some real recovery under my belt and some healing and was like, you know what? Like, I have a life that is really, really amazing. And the most amazing part about that is like, I like myself. Like I genuinely like myself and I genuinely am able to be myself and for the most part, you know, not with perfection. And I was like, I want other people to have this. So then you became a therapist. So then I was like, I guess I'm doing it. So in the idea of like to like yourself, you have to know yourself. And so I know that you had a really unique way of going about that and it started I think in treatment of you being like what the fuck I don't know what I like Mm -hmm. I know what I I know some things I don't like but what did you do to figure out who that person was so then you could learn to like her yeah so I had extensive amounts of self-pity um (laughs) like 
internally. And what did that do for you? Because again, we don't do anything for no reason. So like we get stuck in that self pity victim mode. Yeah. What was that doing for you? It validated me. It was yeah. like, I felt like, Oh my gosh, my life is so bad. And then I kept telling myself my life is so hard. My life is so bad. So then I really didn't have to take any ownership and I didn't have so to do, do anything, anything different. Yeah. And I could just feel helpless and like a victim. And so I literally was in treatment and I looked at my clothes that I was wearing and I was like, these are not even clothes that I would wear. I have dressed this certain country club esque way my whole life. This isn't even me. And most of my life has spent been spent playing sports. And I had this moment where I was like feeling sorry for myself that, you know, I didn't get to explore these other things and really also like didn't feel very feminine. And for some reason I found enough anger to be like you know what like what the hell are you going to do about this like you can't just keep living your whole life feeling sorry for yourself and so I was like all right I'm doing it like I'm gonna start and I really made a commitment to myself I was like I'm gonna try something new every I say every quarter but it was really like every couple months or whatever can I add something Mm -hmm. because I like what you just said and I talked to a lot of people about feelings overall but especially anger and as a society and as humans living in the society we look at that as a really bad feeling and a a scary feeling and a feeling we want to get rid of and another area to walk down is the difference between like anger resentment and rage Mm -hmm. but just anger is not bad and I think of any emotion any feeling as essentially energy and so instead of you staying that place of like I don't want to feel angry you actually are using the anger to move you into a direction that then like the anger might dissipate but like use it don't try to ignore it or hide it you you used it so when I talk to people anybody who's heard me say that that's a direct example of like what I'm talking about your anger can be for you Right. Like anger, when we talk about anger, like if you're not using your anger, you feel depression. If you think about depression to depress something, you press something down so far, it like doesn't exist anymore. And so part of healing is finding your anger, which tells us what we want to be different, what we're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Like when you finally find anger, you're willing to do something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I found that anger and I really started out on this quest. Like my first quest was that I wanted to feel more feminine. And um, Mm -hmm. I remember the only rules were that I... I always had to be doing something different. Like, you know, every when one thing ended, I needed to go on to the next thing. And then the second rule was I had to honor my commitment to myself. And you made those rules. Yeah, they're just my rules. So honoring my commitment was like if I signed up for an eight-week class, I needed to go for all eight weeks no matter how much I hated it. And I never had to do it again, but I had to do it. Almost, I mean, not almost. It literally was me reparenting myself. Mm-hmm. Like that's similar to what healthy parents would do with a child mm-hmm. is like, yeah, you're going to do this for this season. If you don't want to do it again, great, but you're not going to quit. And so if you would have been in Los Angeles when I was out there at LA Fitness, my first thing was going to Zumba class. Oh, my God. Zumba class, I think it was like twice a week for eight weeks. Oh, my God. And I cried for like, I promise you, I cried probably for like the first five weeks. But I did not leave that room Mm -hmm. because that was the goal. It's like I didn't have to dance. I just had to not leave the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm sure people were like, what is going on with this girl? But that's really like, I think was a huge part of my healing. And since then I've done Zumba. I've taken makeup lessons. I've taken uh, lessons on how to curl my hair. I've taken painting. I've taken pottery. I've taken tennis lessons. Oh, I took improv class, two improv classes. You know that 
jujitsu. They're probably yeah, right. <laughs> That's what we started this conversation with. That's I knew we would get yeah. to this, but. Um, there are probably listening people listening to this that are like, oh, that's who she's talking about. I tell that story all the time yeah. because when people are like, I don't know what I like, I'm like, well, there's a way to figure that out. And even when you don't like it, let's say you never do it again, you are still learning what you like in that because you're not just doing the thing. There's many other aspects to it. You're not just making pottery. You're going to a building. You're talking to people. What kind of people are you right. talking to? Like, it's so much more than that. So here, everybody, Megan is who I'm yes, always talking it's about. Me. And there's been so many gifts. A lot of those things I haven't done, but like pottery, for example. Oh, my gosh, I was horrible. I was so horrible at pottery. And, you know, I really tried and the teacher like got frustrated with me and then about four out of the eight weeks in I was like you know what no I'm gonna do something like I'm done trying to make these cups and these bowls like I suck and that's just the reality (laughs) and actually I ended up making I started thinking I had been wanting something to give to my clients when they were done with therapy where they could like Mm -hmm. remember and go on and so I actually ended up making in pottery classes these coins similar like a coin you would get in a 12-step program and they like I use macaroni noodles to like press in the words lean in and so I ended up making these really cool coins that I could give out like when people ended therapy well or not just when they ended well but when they ended therapy with me and it's been such a gift do you still do that yeah i still do it so cool and so yes pottery like making you know bowls didn't really work out for me but i actually got this totally different gift in the midst of trying it yeah and what like a story to tell about you can go into just because how something is starting out doesn't mm-hmm. mean it has to end that way. Like, you can shift. Like, mm-hmm. at any point, you can change your mind about something. Nothing is permanent unless you want it to be. And, um, which I feel like I'm teaching a cycle park class. I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah, but like, she can for breathe. You, yeah. <laughs> but for you, um, uh, you didn't have to quit that class. You just shifted. And are you willing to go through some of the shit to find the gold? Yeah. Like, I think that's the biggest thing. Because even in a lot of the hobbies I've tried, like, yeah, maybe nine out of ten of them, I was like, yep, never doing that again. But it's sort of like I say with dating, you know, before Mm -hmm. I met Eric. I cannot tell you, you know, some of them. I used to do like full on improv skits of bad dates that I went on. Um, I'm actually, I have some friends who are genuinely sad that I met Eric because they don't get to hear about my dates anymore. Oh my God. But you know, like when I look back in the midst of it, was it terrible to go on like so many dates and it wasn't terrible. I mean, I was learning about myself, but to go on all these dates and you know, to meet somebody, maybe date for a little bit and then it doesn't work out and there's a disappointment or you know, you go out with something, you're like, wow, that was really horrible. Or, you know, you know, I have this shitty date jar. (laughs) I have at my house a jar of shitty dates and it is been such a blessing. You know what we should actually do is a me and you do a dating episode. Yeah. Because I do think that one, there is a perception of like, if you're a therapist and this is what you do and you help people, there's a perception that like we do everything right ourselves. And (laughs) I hate to say this, but we don't. Oh, my gosh. We don't. (laughs) Uh, But I think it's interesting the way that we both have faced some of that. Yeah. And it's like, can you keep persevering because you have hope that something else is out there? Like, I can't. If we go back to the dating, you know, yeah, I really probably did when I started intentionally. I mean, when we get to attachment, we can talk about my avoidant attachment style. So, like, I had to really, like, talk myself into going on dates and to dating because I thought, you know, life is good alone. And when I start thinking about all that I went through to meet Eric and to finally like get to that gold, I can't imagine 
Like I would do it all over again times 10. Yeah. I loved watching you move through that. Yeah. And then even when Eric and I started dating, we could do a whole episode on that. Just how hard it was in the beginning of like, oh, I don't know about this. I want to quit. But I stayed in it. And it's like, it's just, it's almost scary to think about like if I would have given up sooner Mm -hmm. and what I would have missed out on. Which also goes yeah. back to people in therapy. Like yeah, sometimes people quit when it gets hard, which is okay. But what kind of gifts are on the other side if you stick with it? And it's bound for, yeah, it's bound to, I hope it gets hard. Like, I hope you want to quit because I hope that like something is being touched that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I hate to say this, but Megan has to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go do some of my own therapy. Yeah, Megan's going to therapy. <laughs> um, but I think this has been wonderful and we didn't even get to like, Wow, we've like stopped your story kind of. I mean, you've become a therapist. Here yeah. you are. And now the, the, the fairy tales the, the, ended. The yeah. movie ends. It's Roll the, credits. Um, yeah. And now my life is happily ever after. She's perfect uh, now, by the way. Perfect. She's engaged. There's no problems, right? Yeah. Um, no problems. <laughs> it is just amazing. You know, we never ever have any yeah. disagreements. Yeah. Weddings are great. Um, we did stop in the middle of all my addictions, but I, I do know. think I do think there is some room to say like. I do live a life of recovery yeah. um, where those behaviors have stopped. Yeah. Um, and can you say you do live a life of recovery in having that there are still places of struggle? Oh, hell yeah. And just because you stop using behaviors doesn't mean all of the other stuff stops. I just want to say that because I do think sometimes we we see, well, they're not doing that anymore, so I'm sure everything's okay now. And that speaks to the fact of why you're continuing to work on yourself. Yeah, it's like over. getting sober in some ways, like just literally stopping drinking. I mean, yeah, I don't want to take any like thing away from it. It was definitely hard. But when I think about that compared to some other behaviors or other things that I deal with, like that was easy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think also like we've talked about this, like what sobriety is. Like I hardly ever think about sobriety. Like it's really important that I don't drink and that is foundational to my recovery. But if all I'm doing is like not doing all these behaviors, then that doesn't mean that I'm any more alive than somebody is. Is like, if you ask me what it is to be alive and I said, oh, somebody's breathing. Okay. Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, technically, but that doesn't mean you're living a full life. And so I'd say the same thing. Like, even for me, I hardly ever think about anymore, like, oh, I don't drink. It's just like, whatever. Or I don't do this behavior. I don't do that behavior. Because, yeah, there are things I need to not engage in. And there's things I need to engage in. But I'm much more concerned with, like, being a recovered person, being, like, who I was fully made to be and, like, living fully in that than I am about what behaviors I'm doing or not doing. I love that. So I want to, in wrapping this up, I think that a good way to kind of like tie it all together is through this story that did I tell this to you or did you have you watched this um despite severely mispronouncing his name I have seen the um TED talk right he has a bunch of stuff but yes he has a TED talk I don't know if he told the story in the TED talk but I tell the story all of the time because I think that addiction get, just gets a bad rap in general. What I want everybody to know is that it's not about the behavior or the thing. And the way that I know that is there's this guy, um, his name is Gabor Mate. He's a doctor and he does a lot of, he wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghost. It's really good. But he uh, was doing this talk and he was explaining like the psychosocial, biopsychosocial model of addiction. And, um, Basically, he was working in a, um, I think it was a harm reduction clinic, which is 
a place where people go to do less of their behaviors and not get rid of them. And there was a lot of heroin addicts in this place specifically. And he went to one of them. Um, and he describes this, which I think the description is important. He describes the guy as like big and tall and like, I think he was like bald and maybe had tattoos or something. My picture in my head that I got was like a big bouncer at like a gym or a club. And he asked him, I want to know what heroin does for you. Like, I want to know what it does for you. We know this is, could kill you. What does this do for you? And the guy said, I don't know how to describe it other than have you ever been sick? I used to cry every time I told the story. I used to be, have you ever been sick? Your mom wraps you up in a blanket, sits you on her lap, and feeds you warm chicken noodle soup. That is what heroin feels like to me. And I don't know what you guys are thinking of that, but what he made of that and what I make of that is, like, that is the feeling of love and belonging. Yeah, chills. Yeah. Like, that is the feeling that you, like, when your mom does that, it's like, that is unconditional love and I belong somewhere and somebody wants to be with me. And that's what we're all searching for. And so, like, yeah, your behaviors might not look like Megan's and they might not look like mine and they might not look like the person who's blacked out at the bar next to you. But what are your behaviors moving you? What are you trying to move towards? Mm -hmm. So it's not what are the behaviors or what am I what am I doing wrong? It's like what am I trying to find or what am I trying to run from? Those are the questions we should be asking and I think that part of your story was you were trying like that's what you were looking for. Those were the questions that you were going towards. So which is the question we're all going for, right? right? Like if we think about even babies in an orphanage, um the failure to thrive syndrome, like they had the food, clothing, and shelter Mm -hmm. and they weren't being touched Mm -hmm. and cared for and the babies literally started dying and so I was talking to somebody about this this week like when you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs like the bottom rung being food clothing shelter and water whatever there's a rung completely underneath that of like love and belonging what was I reading I was reading something somewhere that said that people are starting to think that like physical touch in that is is more important than that the mm-hmm. basic needs now. Well, there's a study too with the monkeys. Um, they what was I? Where was I reading that? The wire monkey and the cloth monkey. Oh, I was monkey? reading. Um, or no, I think that was in. I don't know where I was reading. Yeah, but anyway, but yes, 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 yes. yes. There's yes. nothing wrong with anybody. There's behaviors everybody probably needs yeah, to stop. Yeah, and what, what, right. <laughs> you need therapy. Yeah. You need therapy. We're going to wrap it up there. It's the name of the podcast. If you want and to. And we'll be having more yeah. episodes by request. Yes. <laughs> what do you want Megan to come talk about? What do you want me to shut up and not talk about? Um, but, okay, anyway, so Megan's a therapist, and so I w- do want to give um, a spot right here for you to tell people how to connect with you. If you are loving what she is saying and you want to know more about her, how you can work with her, or how you can just, like, get more of some of her good solid like little nuggets of truth how can they find you yes best place to find me is probably my website www.megan is it a dash dash moyer m-o-i-r.com um you can find out information there and then you can um there's a form if somebody wants to reach out and contact me for speaking or therapy or whatever and then you can also check out my very subpar instagram page (laughs) (laughs) which is also at megan moyer and it is 
a place where I write infrequently. Like, it's, you randomly post this. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. I'm glad she posted this, but it's like rand every three weeks. I know. So Catherine is my inspiration. Maybe one day I will get better at social media. It's just a hard balance. It's so hard um, to keep up with. Between trying to stay off of social media and then also trying to actually produce something that's not like, oh, here she is again. Yeah. And put out some So like, either yeah. one of those things and then maybe on a new podcast that I may or may not start at some yeah, point in my life. Um, and she'll be back here with us. I'll be back with Catherine. And if you ever um, want to run into her, uh, she works in the same office. <laughs> yes, I worked so. in the same office. So yeah. in the same exact Actual office. Space. Um, anyway, uh, thank you. This yes, is great. I wish you. we had more time. I know. Um, but yeah, I'll see you guys at a later date. Two Me weeks, too. preferably. Megan will be back <laughs> in one month. Um, anyway, thank you. I hope you enjoy your therapy today. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right. Bye. Y'all, I told you she was great. There are so many parts of hearing her story that, honestly every time I talk to her, moves me in a direction of just feeling less alone. And I think something I really took as a reminder, which I needed from this conversation, was that we are all more of the same than we are different. And it's important to remember that. Now, our awareness of our behaviors that move us away from relationships and connectedness and our true selves is what's different. Um, There's a lot of shame tied to being honest about our feelings. But what the real deal is, is we're all just humans trying to find a way to access love and belonging through ourselves and other people. So I just want to say again, thank you, Megan, for having that conversation. I needed it, and I'm sure there's somebody out there that also needed it. You're great. You're wonderful. Um, if you loved hearing from Megan, let us know. And if you want to access her to help you out and to help you let go of whatever log you're holding on to, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, Reach out to her for real. As always, please, please, please rate, comment, subscribe to this. I know it sounds like silly, but it really takes two seconds. And in the podcast world, that actually is very helpful and it makes a big difference in more ways than you know. As well, please connect with me. You can follow me on Instagram at at three quarts therapy and you can learn more about my practice at www.threechordstherapy.com. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and I will talk to you very, very soon. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.